this morning. This is going to be a longer sermon than usual. I just thought I'd give you a heads up. You just prepare yourself. To, uh, this is an important topic for us to talk about as a church, and um, I really want to give the attention to it that it deserves. So, um, so I, I stay with me as we go along. And um, this is uh, Psalm 139, uh, starting in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Where shall I go from your, from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we come together to talk about a a sobering topic and major uh, issue in our culture. We pray that you would give us truth and grace as we come to your word. Give us attentive minds, open hearts, ears to hear what you would say to us. We thank you for your word, which is a light in a dark world. I pray for all um, of those who are here, who are listening or engaging uh, this, uh, this sermon and this, this dialogue about this issue. Uh, give us soft hearts to hear what you would say to us. And may your spirit lead us into all truth, we pray. Um, in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. So uh, today is, as uh, some of you may know, uh, Sanctity of Life uh, Sunday, which uh, Sanctity of Life Day was a, a proclamation that was first um, uh, originally issued by Ronald Reagan in 1984, and is a day that uh, has been uh, observed by pro-life presidents uh, ever since. And it's actually a day where many churches uh, across the country uh, take a day to address the topic, the issue of abortion in our culture, and so it's kind of in solidarity with the, the American church and, and this, uh, the pro-life movement that we're going to uh, take a, a, a Sunday away from our normal preaching schedule to, to talk about abortion, and you know, I should say, I've, you know, I've been a pastor for six and a half years now, and this, I have not given a sermon on abortion, I've, not, I've talked very little bit about it, I maybe mentioned it in a few sermons, and yet I felt very uh, strongly compelled uh, to talk about it, and I, I do consider it. Uh, one of the great uh, evils present in our society today. And uh, there are a couple stories that I came across just this past week that I think highlight why this is such an important topic for us to talk about. And the first story came from a, a memoir I just started reading a week or so ago, and I, it's, uh, it's called Wild. Some of you might know it. I think there's a movie been made about it. And uh, it tells a story about uh, Cheryl Strayed, who 
I, when she was in her 20s, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail and uh, by herself. And uh, it's really an interesting story. She actually says that she had never spent the night by herself backpacking ever. And then all of a sudden she goes on a 1100 mile hike alone. And uh, in the opening chapters of the book, talk about like how did she come to this decision? I'm going to go on this trek and have this experience. And you know, she mentions that her her mother, who was her closest friend, died of, of of lung cancer. She watched her die. She was with her in the hospital, and then uh, she was divorced from the man that she really loved. And uh, she lived this promiscuous life, and, and uh, she was getting into heroin, and uh, and uh, living with with her boyfriend, and um, all of these. Uh, receive a tremendous amount of introspection and reflection in these opening chapters. And then in the middle of all this, she's preparing to go on this hike, and she gets pregnant. And I want to read to you her comments from the one page where she addresses the pregnancy. This is what she says. That I would get an abortion was a fact, so, uh, uh, was a fact so apparent it seemed silly to discuss anything else. But then she goes on the next paragraph, and she reflects momentarily on, on, on the pregnancy. And this is what she says. It was the size of a grain of rice, and yet I could feel it in the deepest, strongest part of me, taking me down, shaking me up, reverberating out. It's an incredibly deep and emotional connection already happening with her and this, this child that's forming inside of her. And yet in the very next paragraph, this is, and this is the, the paragraph that really struck me. She said this, I got an abortion and learned how to make dehydrated tuna flakes and turkey jerky and took a refresher course on basic first aid and practiced using my water purifier in my kitchen sink. And this, uh, you, know, you know, I haven't read the rest of the book. This may be something that she comes back to later in the book, but at least at this point in the book, she's trying to communicate how casual and routine an activity getting an abortion is. It's just a part of her to-do list to get ready with her hike that's right alongside learning how to make turkey jerky is getting an abortion. And this is one of the things that I, I, and um, we as Christians, we're so appalled by this because this is just one example of the over a million abortions that happen per year in the U.S. One in five pregnancies end in abortion. And this was a woman who obviously felt the power of what was happening inside of her. And she ignored that. And so the first reason why we have to have a sermon like this and to talk about an abortion is to give a megaphone to that small voice of conscience that is in everyone, even a woman who could casually and routinely have an abortion, to give a megaphone to that, that conscience that says, this is wrong. We cannot do this. This cannot be a casual part of our society. But, you know, there was a second story this week. Uh, came from uh, Art Lim. Art is one of our elders here. And he was uh, sharing with me about a friend that he knew in, in high school who uh, got his girlfriend uh, pregnant and uh, this his friend told Art that you know they were thinking about getting an abortion and Art at that time he was kind of a young Christian he didn't know a whole lot but he told his friend he said you know you're going to regret this do not do it this is wrong I'm telling you and but of course you know for two teenagers who were facing having a baby and uh, facing all the difficulties that would go with that um, 
Obviously, it would drastically affect their lives, and so they got the abortion. And his friend, who was not a Christian, you know, he didn't have Bible verses telling him God is angry about this and kind of putting shame on him for it, told Art after the abortion that every day afterward he would look himself in the mirror and bawl his eyes out. He was completely torn apart with shame. And the other aspect about those over a million abortions that are happening in our society every year is that means that we're surrounded by people all around us who have had abortions. And of course, I, let me just say it, it's my assumption that some of you have had abortions. That would be my just assumption giving a sermon like this. And, um, and I know that um, this is a hard thing to now listen to a whole sermon about what the Bible has to say about abortion. And um, to you, I want to say that you need to know that you will not be shunned here. You will not be shamed. But this is a place where we face our wrongs and receive grace, the grace that is in Jesus. This sermon is an invitation to that. It's an invitation to welcome and to dialogue. But what these two stories tell us as a church is that we have a double task. One is the task of giving a megaphone to, the con- to our consciences that says that this is wrong, an alarming, awakening the conscience of our culture. And yet the other voice, not a megaphone, it's a gentle voice of welcome to those who have been affected by abortion and say, come and find healing and washing in Jesus. And we have to do both those, give both those messages at the same time. A message of truth and grace. We have to speak truth and grace. And so how do we accomplish that as a church? How do we speak truth and grace? How do we have a message of truth and grace? And of course, it is the word of God that is always that balanced message. And uh, so as we look at God's word together this morning, I want to answer five questions for us about abortion. This is what they are. What does the Bible say? What has the church said? What does science say? What does our culture say? And what does the gospel say? Okay, we're going to look at the Bible. We're going to look at church history. We're going to look at science. We're going to look at our culture. And we're going to look at the gospel. And I should say, this sermon was way longer. I did all that I could to hack it down. There's so much I want to say about this, and I know I'm, I, we're not going to get to everything, and hopefully this is a conversation starter. But our first question this morning is this. What does the Bible say? And, you know, the, there's a number of scriptures that uh, speak about abortion in the Bible, and I just can't go through all of them and explain all of them. But I think, for me, the most compelling scripture is the one I just read, Psalm 139, which describes the care given by God to the formation of a fetus into a baby. Um, and, I, you know, I want us to read this again. Look at, look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And of course, this is an amazing, uh, these are amazing verses that tell us that what's happening in the womb of a mother who is bearing a child is a work of God, and that work should fill us with wonder. 
And one of the reasons that a verse like this is so important in the debate on, ab about abortion is because one of the common distinctions that our culture has made about, um, about a fetus or even a, you know, an embryo uh, inside a mother is that there is a distinction between a human being and a person. And actually, that was an important distinction in the Roe versus Wade uh, um, uh, case that uh, transformed our culture back in 1973 was this distinction that a fetus or an embryo is actually not, is a human being but is not yet a person. And only persons have rights. And so, uh, and uh, actually, uh, many pro-choice advocates would say that indeed abortion does kill a human being. And, but uh, a human being has value and dignity and rights only when they attain some level of personhood, and that does not happen early in a pregnancy. And so we have to ask the question as Christians, how do we define a person? What is the thing that we look to that says that makes all of us have equal value and dignity to say that our lives should be protected, human life is valuable? What makes human life valuable? What makes human life equal? And what Christians have always said is that we are made in the image of God, and that is what gives us dignity and worth. You and I reflect to the world something of what God is like, the beauty and splendor of God's character, and that's why human life must be protected. Whether someone is a Christian or not a Christian, all human beings display God's glory. And what's amazing about this passage is it assures us that even a fetus is fulfilling the purpose of human life. This is actually, a fetus is living a full and meaningful life because they still display the glory of God and show what God's glory is like, and that's what human life is about. Verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. A fetus, even an embryo, inspires praise in people. They behold the wonder of it and say, God is amazing, God is miraculous, and displays something of who God is. And this is actually one of the reasons why ultrasound technology has been so pivotal in, uh, in a pro-life movement, is because before ultra ultrasound te technology, statistics say that for a woman who had entered into a clinic who was considering having an abortion, um, only 20 to 30% would walk out and decide to keep their pregnancy, uh, keep the baby until the end of the pregnancy. But after ultrasound technology came, the number has gone up to somewhere around 80 or 90 percent, and some statistics even say as high as 98 percent of women who see an ultrasound image of the child that is inside of them will keep that baby. And the reason is because to see a, a, a child is to behold the glory of God and to know that this is a human being who has dignity and worth and a life that must be protected against all costs. A child displays the glory of God. And I'll tell you what happens. If, you, if we do not base the dignity of human beings in the fact that they bear the image of God, then uh, we will find something else to try to, to determine uh, what gives value to human beings. And, um, you know, I read an article by the uh, Princeton uh, bioethicist, um, uh, Peter Singer, who comes to conclusions that actually eating a fish is, uh, is a, a bigger moral problem than getting an abortion because of how he defines the human person. You get into all kinds of in insane, crazy moral arguments, and that's why throughout human history, it is the Christian's regard for human beings being made in the image of God has been the basis for human rights. We are made, we are endowed with the, the image of our creator. 
But you know, it is not only humans who marvel at the glory of God when they see an unborn fetus, but also God himself marvels when he sees what's happening inside of a woman who has a child. You see that there in verse 16. I think, for me, these are the most powerful words in this passage. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. This passage tells us that an unformed embryo, um, all the rapid activity of multiplication and formation is watched by God with delight. And, you know, what's so deeply troubling is you imagine that every single child that is being formed inside of a mother, God watches with wonder and with joy and with delight and with creativity and with involvement. He is attentive. His eyes are watching. He's looking. And you think as God has all that delight of one of his image bearers is being formed, as you imagine before his eyes, human surgical instruments entering into that scene before him and destroying what gives him joy. I can only tell you that such an act stirs the wrath of God, and it should stir our wrath as well. And, um, you know, if it doesn't stir our anger, you know, one of the things I did for um, preparing for the sermon is you can watch an abortion online. It's, it is a terrible, it's terrible. You will be traumatized. I assure you will be traumatized. But you, you, will be, you will not leave that viewing unchanged. And when you see that and you think, God has watched this, 55 million times over the last 40 years in our country, you'll be horrified. The Bible tells us even an embryo glorifies God and is a life that must be protected. Okay? So, as we look at, well, that's what the Bible says. Well, how, how as a church, do we respond to that? And um, I want to look at the second question, not just what the Bible says, but second what has the church said throughout history? And I imagine, you know, for the average person, I think many people think that abortion is kind of a, a modern ethical problem. But abortion is an ancient practice and one that the church has been fighting and speaking out against for literally a millennia. And uh, the historian George Grant gives a, a summary. I read a summary of a number of the practices that... Uh, uh, ancient civilizations, ways they tried to do abortions. And basically all the cultures of antiquity um, uh, were stained with the blood of innocent children. We have accounts uh, among the Romans and the Greeks and the Persians and the Chinese and the Hindus and, and Arabs. And all of these cultures had all kinds of strange ways. I mean, it's just amazing the lengths that human societies will go to in order to perform abortions. It's been a huge, it's a huge part of human civilization and even uh, ancient artwork, ancient uh, storytelling and mythology was a huge part of it. And um, in fact, uh, as you look at all of the great thinkers and philosophers of antiquity, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, Cicero, um, uh, none of them were critical of child killing and actually most of them recommended child killing. And so as we think about abortion, many people in our society think of abortion as a progressive practice. Um, but the truth is that abortion is grossly regressive. Its roots are in the dark, oppressive, pagan societies of antiquity that had no regard for the value of human life. And we are living in a revival of that darkness. And in this regard, Christians have always been countercultural. Christians have been the true progressives. 
defending uh, human life. And, you know, just like the Jews who were actually before them, Christians in the early church, uh, forbid the practice of abortion. And, you know, some of you may know Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark was a, a historian at the University of Washington for 30 years who wrote uh, a book called The Rise of Christianity, which talks about how did the early church, there was just this kind of marginal Jesus movement, um, grow so exponentially in the Roman Empire in the early centuries of the church so that by the fourth century, um, half of the people living in the cities of the Roman Empire were Christian. What accounts for this growth? And one of the main things he says was that the church brought in women, its regard for women, but also because um, the church believed in the family, believed in having children. They didn't throw away their baby girls. And they were often bringing in children and raising them as Christians. And this was the thing, is that the church was never simply anti-abortion. The church cared for the weak, the poor, and the defenseless, so that, you know, we have records in Rome where, uh, where Christians would adopt the babies that were left outside the city walls just to die and to be eaten by wild animals. They'd bring them in and they'd raise them as Christians. Or we have records in Corinth where Christians would bring uh, pregnant prosti- temple prostitutes into their home and let them live with them and have their babies in their homes in safety and then give them this whole new start on life. And so speaking the truth against abortion was combined with a costly love. And the church's practices historically of speaking the word, word and deed together are so important for those of us who believe in the pro-life movement because, you know, it's a common criticism that conservatives care about the baby and liberals care about the woman. And, you know, I, I have to say, I, I don't think that's true. I, my, I, my experience is that churches, there's nothing like a church in a society. A community of all kinds of people who are coming together to be a family to anyone who come, comes in. And churches open their arms to all kinds of young moms, young, young expectant uh, uh, couples saying, we want to be a support team. And I know many people in our, in our community in this church have been a part of the Walk-In Pregnancy Clinic, uh, caring uh, for women who are expecting. But we still need to be reminded that if a single woman is pregnant and decides to have a baby, that is going to be a major trial in her life. It will change everything about her. And she has a very high probability she's going to live in poverty. We have to be very careful that we don't just as Christians just talk about don't kill the baby, but we must be actively supporting young moms, providing love and community. And if we are not sacrificially sympathetic to what she is facing, involved in what she is facing, walking with her in what she is facing, we are not really fighting abortion. It is simply not enough to just say abortion is wrong. And this pattern, word and deed together, has been the pattern of the church throughout history. It was true throughout the medieval period. We have all kinds of writings of historians talking about abortion and the works of the church. And it, it was, of course, it's been true in the missionary movement in the modern era where... Uh, you know, as many of you hear about missionaries who go to, to go, go to other countries, one of the first things they end up starting doing is starting orphanages because of all the children that are being thrown out and they bring the children in, they care for them, and they teach them the gospel and they feed them and try to provide something of a family with them, for them. But in uh, the 20th century, there's been a flood of change of opinion in the churches in the Western world. So statements in the 20th century uh, by mainline Lutheran churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Presbyterian denominations, 
in support of abortion were widely made. All kinds of churches said, you know, I, we believe either we support a woman's dis, dis, uh, right to choose or we, uh, or we actually think that abortion is permissible practice. And this is included even, you know, the evangelical magazine Christianity Today at one point made a statement, uh, uh, an approving statement of abortion. Now, there were all kinds of exceptions throughout the this, this century. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, G.K. Chesterton, Corey Ten Boom, uh, Billy Graham were all opposed to abortion. The Catholic Church has been staunchly opposed to abortion. Um, but by 1985, the year after uh, the film uh, The Silent, Silent Scream, some of you will maybe know that film is about a, um, a doctor who performed abortions and saw an abortion happen on an uh, uh, ultrasound, and he became a pro-life advocate. And uh, this, uh, many people saw this film, and, and by the end of the 1980s, almost all the evangelical leaders in our country were resolved uh, against abortion, saying this is wrong. And so, um, if you are a Christian, you should know that globally and historically, the church has overwhelmingly been opposed to abortion. Okay? This is not, you know, some myopic vision. This is, this is a historic position of the church. And we should listen to the body of Christ when it speaks about an ethical issue like this. Now, this is true historically. But we have to see that there's uh, even more reason to oppose abortion because we now live in the modern world. And this is the third thing we're going to talk about. We're talking about what does the Bible say? What has the church said historically? The third thing is what does science say? And uh, Christians have been very, fairly consistent in believing that human life and personhood begins at conception and there, therefore after conception every embryo and fetus has a right to life. Now, you know, there's a book that I read several years ago by Sam Harris. Some of you might know Sam Harris. He's a very prominent atheist who uh, debates Christians on university campuses. And he wrote a short book called Letter to a Christian Nation, which I read. And I'll say there's one part where he's actually talking about stem cell research, which is, is a different matter. I don't have time to get into that. And I, I, we could talk more about that. But there's one part of his argument that um, I want to interact with because reading this paragraph was really unsettling to me personally, even though I was a pastor. This is what he says. A three-day-old uh, human embryo is a collection of 150 cells called a blastocyst. There are, for the sake of comparison, more than 100,000 cells in the brain of a fly. The human embryos that are destroyed in stem cell research do not have brains, or even neurons. Consequently, there is no reason to believe they can suffer their destruction in any way. Uh, there's no reason to believe that they can suffer their destruction in any way at all. If you are concerned about suffering in this universe, killing a fly should present you with greater moral difficulties than killing a human blastocyst. And so he says that you know, if, it, if an embryo is simply a tiny blastocyst, we are overreacting by opposing abortion, by arguing over such inconsequential collections of cells. Why should we care? Why should we say, you know, from the point of conception, why should we care about something that you can't even, you can't even feel? It's so small. Now, the first answer to that we've already talked about in the Bible is that God delights in that forming embryo. He sees the unformed substance. 
and he glories in it, and he joys, and he takes joy in it. But there are other things that we can say about that as well. I think one of the main things for me is that um, that small collection of cells is not just a static group of cells, but there is a rapid activity happening inside that small organism. It is transforming rapidly. And I put a, uh, a, a quote for you in the bulletin if you want to follow along. This is from uh, Randy Alcorn's helpful little book, Why Pro-Life. And this is what he says. In Leonard Nilsson's Drama of Life Before Birth, he says this of the unborn, at 45 days after conception, before many women know they're pregnant. Though the embryo now weighs only 1 30th of an ounce, it has all the internal organs of the adult in various stages of development. It already has a little mouth with lips, an early tongue and buds for 20 milk teeth. Its sex and reproductive organs have begun to spout, sprout. By eight weeks, hands and feet are almost perfectly formed. By nine weeks, a child will bend fingers around an object placed in the palm. Fingernails are forming, and the child is sucking his thumb. The nine-week baby has already perfected a somersault, backflip, and scissor kick. The unborn responds to stimulus and may already be capable of feeling pain, yet abortions on children at this stage are called early abortions. All this happens in the first trimester, the first three months of life. In the remaining six months in the womb, nothing new develops or begins functioning. The fully intact child only grows and matures unless her life is lost by spontaneous miscarriage or taken through abortion. It is an indisputable scientific fact that each and every surgical abortion stops a beating heart and stops already measurable brain waves. And so that blastocyst is rapidly becoming a complex, small, but identifiable human being. It is not static. It's not just staying still. It is moving and it's transforming quickly. There's a tremendous amount of energy and activity happening. And, you know, I should say at this point that it's, you know, it's very common for a pro-choice advocates to say that the reason that a woman has a right to terminate a pregnancy is because that, uh, that embryo or that fetus is a part of her body. She has a right to do with her body what, what she wants to. This is simply not true. Every cell in her body has the exact same DNA, except for the cells in that embryo or that fetus. The fetus has its own DNA. It has its own blood type. It has its own arms, legs, brain, heart, and eyes and face. And she is caring for a unique uh, image bearer of God who is dependent on her for love and protection and nurture. That's not her body. It's another person's body she's caring for. And the other thing about Harris's argument that uh, I think he underplays is the significance of the potential of an, what that embryo is going to become. You know, we often think of uh, tragedies in terms of uh, what would have happened. You know, if, 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 so, if any of us lost a child, one of the things that we would grieve most deeply about that child is of who they were going to become. We were like, oh, I couldn't wait for them to have a family, to graduate from high school or from college, to see what gifts they use and to become, see who they were going we you know, to become. And we imagine all those things, and they make the death of that child all the more painful. 
And so that means that the potential of what something is becoming, is on its path to becoming, is an important part of the moral argument. And you see that that is an important thing to God as well in this verse, where it says in verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That even as God is forming that child, he is looking into the future, dreaming of plans of who this child is going to become. And so to say that a human embryo is worth less than the brain of a fly is so deeply offensive. It is offensive. We should be deeply offended by that. But for me, this raises a question. Um, why, why is this an issue? And, and this has been a, you know, a thing for me because most things in our culture where I disagree with someone in our culture, most things I get why other people believe the other side. I'm like, you know, and that makes sense. I disagree with you, but I make sense. I can engage that. But this is, you know, I think for many of us, and maybe this is just because I live in kind of an evangelical subculture and I'm, you know, not outside of this world, but I think, you know, I understand why a pro-life person is passionate about this. This is the killing of a child. Why is the other side so passionate about it? And that's the fourth thing that we need to talk about is we've looked at what does the Bible say? What does the church history say? What does science say? But it's important for us to interact with what does our culture say. And the main burden of the pro-choice movement is, of course, the empowerment of women. That is the passion. That's the thing that's really at stake in this argument. And I, I, I read an article this past week on, on Salon. Salon's a, a, um, a liberal uh, website. Um, and there was an article from this past year called... I am pro-abortion, not just pro-choice. And it was, it's, it's ten reasons why abortion is not only something that should be permissible in our culture, but this person is saying why I think abortion is actually a good, healthy thing for our society. That's why we need it. And number one of the ten reasons why abortion is a healthy thing, this is what they said, was this. I'm pro-abortion because being able to delay and limit childbearing is fundamental to female empowerment and equality. A woman who lacks the means to manage her fertility lacks the means to manage her life. Any plans, dreams, aspirations, responsibilities, or commitments, no matter how important, have a great big contingency clause built until or unless I get pregnant, in which case all bets are off. Think of any professional woman you know. She wouldn't be in that role if she hadn't been able to time and limit her childbearing. Think of any girl you know who imagines becoming a professional woman. She won't get there unless she has effective, reliable means to manage her f fertility. And so this is really what's at stake in this debate. This is why, this is why there, there's heat and there's emotion on both sides. And so it's important for us as a church to, to ask, well, how do we respond to that? Empowerment of women. Well, I want to say a few things. The first thing is that we as a church must affirm the dignity of women, the importance of women in society. I, I agree. I think we should be champions of equal pay for women in workplaces. That means if, if you are a business owner, if you are a manager, that is something that you should think about. Are, are the women that work, under, work uh, in my business, are they treated equally with the men that, that, uh, that work with, with me? And um, I think it's an important thing for us to affirm as a church. If that's something that we want in the broader society, that, that all image bearers are treated equally, 
that's something that we have to do in the church as well. This is particularly important for us as a congregation. We're a congregation that only has male elders and pastors and deacons. And so, but the Bible gives a picture of men and women laboring side by side with one another. And so do women have a voice in our church? Their ideas and their gifts um, and what they have to contribute. That's an important thing that we always need to be coming back to and affirming as a congregation. And I think also in terms of activism against abortion, by far the most important thing we can do is find ways to support women, support single moms, and support young couples who are expecting. And this is something that we should care about. We should not be resisting the whole question of the empowerment of women. That it should be, we, should, we as, as well should be champions of equality. But you cannot correct an evil with another evil. You cannot correct an evil with another evil. And there are ways to address inequality. And abortion, on principle, is not one of them. If we want to uh, work on equality, we need to think of ways to do that, but you cannot choose an evil way to, to address it. And this has to be off the table. And so on the one hand, as a church, I think we must affirm the, uh, the dignity of women. But I think the second thing that goes alongside of that as well as a church is I think that we must affirm the dignity of motherhood. And our culture, I think in many ways, thinks of motherhood as like a prison. You know, having a career is freedom, but being a mother is I'm being locked in and, and I'm losing all my freedom. And, you know, uh, uh, many abortions happen because men do not want to take responsibility for a family and women do, uh, do not want to feel trapped in motherhood. But for women, there is a big lie that being out in the working world is this big, open, sky's the limit place of freedom and creativity and being at home is this place of mere drudgery. You know, actually, uh, Shannon and I had some friends who we, some of the brightest people we knew in high school went to very elite schools. These, these gals, uh, they went to law school. And um, we saw them, actually, after they'd gone to law school and they'd, gone, <laughs> they'd gotten into a law firm. And they were like, you know, the law firm is awful. I mean, our work is extremely narrow. Um, we work unimaginable hours. And if you were to define what is drudgery or slavery, it is what they were doing in the law firm. And I think that kind of caught them off guard. And, and actually, one of them said, you know, I'm quitting. I'm not even going to do this. I went all the way through law school. Now, this is not to say anything about being a lawyer or a woman being a lawyer or they shouldn't be a lawyer. It, it, all it is to say is that if you think the law firm is freedom and the home is slavery, you've got it totally backwards. Because to be a mother means you are the queen of a small kingdom. You make all the laws. You call all the shots. And your work is immensely broad, right? I mean, you're an artist. You decorate the home and you make it welcoming and, and beautiful for people to come in. You're a chef. You're cooking all this uh, food. You're a social worker. You're bringing in people from the outside who are lonely and, and, and you, you know, counseling people and sitting with them and welcoming um, them in. You are... Uh, um, you're an ethicist and a theologian and a lawmaker, right? You're still a lawyer, right? You've got these kids who are arguing with one another. You've got to settle it down. You're a nurse caring for people's bodies. Being a mother is the broadest vocation anyone could have, and it requires the, the most vast skills that you could possibly imagine. And now I have to sympathize. Because it is so broad, because it is so demanding, it is immensely hard work. It is a sacrifice. 
But it's clear the gospel tells us that all the things that matter most in the world, that are most worth doing with your life, demand sacrifice. They demand a death to the self. And we will not be apologetic because motherhood is like that. We will honor motherhood because of that. And so the work of raising a child, the formation of a human being, is the biggest and most significant work anyone can give their lives to, and it requires the most skill. And so we will, we will continue to give profound dignity to motherhood. But there is another thing that we also must affirm as our church, that we must say to the church, is that we must affirm the dignity of the poor. And some of you may not know this, but the truth is that the, the pro-choice movement began as an attempt to keep poor people from having children. And if, uh, if you don't know, Margaret Sanger is the uh, founder of Planned Parenthood um, in the early 20th century, deeply racist woman. Uh, she began what uh, she called the Negro Project, which was a project uh, going into black neighborhoods, actually working with black leaders to in, uh, encourage black families to not have children, um, to, ha to abort their children. And uh, she wanted to rid our society of defects, uh, delinquents, and dependents and it was her plan to purify our race through eugenics. She's a deeply evil woman, is, is the founder of Planned Parenthood, and to this day, abortion is a deeply racist practice. 43% of African-American pregnancies end in abortion. 43, that's almost half of African-American pregnancies end in abortion. And even though African-Americans only make up 12% of the US population, they account for 35% of the abortions. And I've heard some statistics, this is a little debated, so I'm not sure, is, is that 78% of abortion clinics um, are in minority communities. And, you know, I actually read one of Margaret Sanger's books, suffered through one of her books. Actually, it was, it was kind of a strange book. It was on contraception. It was like 1917 on, on family limitation, and she describes all these, you know, kind of uh, old <laughs> forms of, of contraception. And, uh, but it, she makes it very clear at the beginning of the book, the reason she is writing it is to keep poor families from having children. That, is, that was her goal. And so at the heart of the pro-choice movement from its inception um, is, is been gross uh, discrimination. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, we think of abortion as a progressive practice. It is not. It is terribly regressive. And simply because abortion happens in sanitized clinics does not mean that it is normal. And so uh, here we have this immense issue in our culture. It has d done damage to so many families, so many women, so many men. And so we have to ask one last question. What does the gospel have to say about abortion? And as we come to the end of this sermon... I want to say that the gospel speaks uh, to both um, uh, the expectant mother who has a pregnancy that was unplanned, unwanted, is facing all kinds of fears related to that pregnancy, and also to the one who's had an abortion and f faces all kinds of darkness and fear and shame of uh, whether, was that the right decision? And maybe uh, now that's you. And I, you know, I have to say, I, I thank you for listening to this sermon. Um, if that is you, I know that's painful. I know it's hard to hear all these things. And I, I hope that you know that we speak these words in love. And you are welcome here to speak about your past. But this darkness 
that we want to run away from. This isolation, this loneliness, the Bible speaks to. And Psalm 139 speaks to. And these are some of the most powerful words that tell us that God is present in the darkness. Look at what it says, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that's to say if I run away, if I want to be alone, I don't want to be around anyone. If I run away, it says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. The darkness becomes light when God is with you. And so if you're here today and you're facing an unwanted pregnancy that deeply frightens you, I invite you to go to Jesus. He is good. He is gentle. He will be with you. But he doesn't want you to keep it in the dark. He wants you to bring it into the light. And you need to know that this is a community that would come around you and support you. We want to know you. We want to walk with you. If you are here and you have had an abortion at some point in your life, I also invite you to come to Jesus. He bids all sinners to come to him to be washed, to be forgiven, to be embraced. And you 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 might say, you said earlier in this sermon that God looks at an abortion and it stirs him with anger. How am I ever going to approach him if he's stirred with wrath? And this is what the gospel says, is that God's wrath against abortion has been laid on Jesus. When he died on the cross, he has taken our place. And so that in him we can have forgiveness, we can be embraced, we can be welcomed if we receive the love that he has for us. And the way to experience healing from shame is not to hide our sins, but to lay them at the feet of Jesus. And lastly, for the rest of us, I invite you to come to Jesus as well. If you have ignored this issue, uh, we too must come to him and realize that the only life that we have is because God has adopted us into his family. And we must be a family with open arms, welcoming the millions who are affected by abortion, who are affected by uh, pregnancies that were unplanned, And one of the things is if we are going to say to women they must sacrifice for those babies, we must be willing to sacrifice with them. We must say you will not sacrifice alone. And that is the only way that we can stand against this. We are a community of sinners, and though we stand against abortion, our hope is that many who have had abortions would come here and find they are accepted and loved. The truth and grace that the world needs are only found in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the light of your truth, which both exposes, it's frightening what it exposes in us, and yet it is healing and washing and renewal and hope. I pray uh, for those who are here touched uh, by this topic, by these words. Draw us to yourself. Give us faith.
come to you. We pray uh, for our uh, nation that you uh, would awaken our conscience to turn from this great evil. Renew us. Forgive us. Wash us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.